There, okay. All right, we've already read through the passage in John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. And I've entitled this message, Spectator Faith or Saving Faith. And just with that title, your minds are probably already going. Um, and your wheels are turning. And perhaps you're beginning to analyze, what is my faith like? Am I someone who is content to watch and absorb and benefit from the uh, external trappings of the gospel or perhaps from the enthusiasm that surrounds the gospel? Do I get caught up in that kind of thing? Or is the faith that is in me, is it faith that actually unites me with the living God that has brought me to life from spiritual death and given me true and sure hope of eternal life. Well, this, uh, this passage explores the difference between a spectator faith and saving faith. Uh, our understanding of saving faith has become so very distorted over time uh, in the evangelical church. When the reformers protested against the subdued and the suppressed gospel that was being preached or not being preached at the time of the Reformation, they, the movement thrived because there was a rediscovery of true saving faith. And it was not, it was not like this. Martin Luther was in his study one day and he, uh, he was reading the book of Romans and all of a sudden, it dawned on him, we need more altar calls. We need, we need to make the gospel easier for people to receive. No, the revelation was, the just shall live by faith. And the revelation was that scripture was the governing, uh, was the guide and the foundation of everything that we believe. And... Therefore, the teaching of the Reformers, it was an endeavor to bring forth the whole counsel of God, not just to distill the gospel into one little um, bite-sized bit that you could swallow like a pill and that would save you, but to expand and make glorious that gospel. And to provide for their congregations every time they would meet to exposit the word, a feast of the living bread of the word of God and of Christ himself. So, when Jesus came and he preached and he did his did miracles to, um, to support the words that he was, or to draw attention to the words that he was speaking... Jesus had a very keen eye over the two types of faith, a superficial um, spectator type faith and saving faith. If anyone has ever known the difference between those two things and been able to see into human hearts and understand where that person was in relation to God, it was Jesus and is Jesus. He still has those eyes of fire in the book of Revelation 
makes it clear that he still has those piercing eyes. And uh, he is still the one that sees the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Well, as we go through this passage, we begin with a, a very puzzling section. And it, it, I'm including this, it's not in the actual story, but it is not just a parenthesis. You will see in verse 44, there is a parenthesis added by the translators of the English Standard Bible. And perhaps you have a different Bible and that may or may not have parentheses. But this, um, <coughs> this verse has been treated as um, sort of a, something that John just haphazardly threw in there. And people have not seen the connection with the surrounding text. But I would argue today that we can't make sense of the rest of this passage unless we treat this as more than a parenthesis. These two verses, verses 43, or three verses, 43 through 46. Um, I have, I've uh, broken this up into a few points. And this first point I'm, I'm calling a dishonorable welcome. Now that is not an oxymoron. You know, an oxymoron, something like jumbo, jumbo shrimp, military intelligence. Um, this is not an oxymoron. This is a welcome that was actually received. This is how people receive Jesus. And this is how people very often receive the ministry of the gospel. And you're, I'll try to explain this as best I can. So in verse 43, it says, After two days he departed for Galilee. Now remember, he's just been in Samaria. And there has been a harvest in Samaria. The last thing that Jesus talks about are the fields that are white unto harvest. He's saying the, there are people bring, being brought in to the fold right now. The Savior is calling his sheep and they are coming. The, the wheat is being harvested. Uh, so there, and this has been among the Samaritans, among the least likely people, among people who have a, a distorted understanding or a, a minimalized understanding of Scripture as opposed to having all of the revelation of the Jews. And yet they are coming to Jesus in droves because of the testimony of this woman, this adulterous woman who is, has had her life exposed but has found in Jesus the living water the Messiah, and the hope of eternal life. Now, but now he's coming to Galilee. Now, if, uh, I guess, are our, is our PowerPoint working? Okay, we don't need it anyway. All right. But now Jesus has, he's gone from Judea, which is sort of uh, Jewish central. You know, that's where Jerusalem is. That's where all the Jews would come to worship. And He's come, coming, gone from Judea. He's gone up into Samaria, and he's uh, met the woman at a town called Sychar, or Sychar, um, about halfway up the Jordan River, and he's heading up toward Galilee, the the region of the Sea of Galilee, um, and so he's he's heading north. So in between Jewish territory and Jewish territory, even though it's called Galilee of the Gentiles, it was still occupied by by mostly Jewish believers, or Jewish uh, people. Uh, he's gone through Samaria, and there's this great harvest. Now he's going back to his own region. 
In fact, Jesus, if he had a headquarters, it would be Capernaum, which, which is in the region of Galilee. So he's heading up there. Now, he says, After two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, some translations, they wouldn't include that word for, or they would maybe not include the word therefore. But this is the way that it was actually written in Greek. Uh, that, that, that for, that connection between him departing for Galilee and the saying that a prophet is, has no honor in his own hometown, that there is an intentional connection there. And the idea is this, he is going to Galilee because he's not welcome there. That is the sense of it. He is living out the theme that pulsates throughout the whole book of John. He came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. Jesus does some very strange, ironic things. Remember when he washed his disciples' feet? Jesus, knowing that he had come from heaven and was going back to heaven, took a towel, put it around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. There, there's a connection there, but it isn't the connection we would make. So, and then, this is even further emphasized when he comes to verse 45. So, when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So he's, he's going where he's not welcome, or not wanted, and he is being welcomed where he's not wanted. It's really important that we read very carefully when we read the book of John. There are so many things you can miss if you just skip over them, because the next thing says having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. They are welcoming him, but they are welcoming him with reasons and motive that have no concern of truly honoring him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. They are welcoming him as someone who is a spectacle, someone who puts on a good show, who... uh, who maybe uh, brings, uh, brings uh, entertainment value or, or heals the sick. I mean, he's already demonstrated that he can do that. But this is not something that honors Jesus. Simply believing on someone because of the works that are done. So he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed, welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now if you recall in chapter 2, after Jesus had um, turned the water to wine at Cana of Galilee, that was kind of a private meeting, he went back to Jerusalem for the feast, and he cleansed the temple. He basically cleared all of the money changers out of there and declared that, that it was his, his father's house. And then he did other signs and miracles and many people believed on him because of the signs that he was doing. But do you know what the scripture says? 
How did Jesus respond to this? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast in John 2, 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So on the surface, the Galileans who had been down in Jerusalem and had been one of the, some of those people who'd seen the signs and had believed in him because of the signs, Jesus knew what was really in their hearts. And you can tell as we go through this passage that not only is he not impressed with what's really in their hearts, it seems he's actually a little bit upset about it. Angry. That they are missing so much. Well, as we proceed through, we find a man who is on a desperate walk. These are all D's and W's. A dishonorable, dishonorable welcome is first, and now there's a man who's on a desperate walk. And this is in verse... Uh, in verse... 46... At Capernaum, there was an official um, whose son was ill. Now, this word official, it's actually the word basilikos, and a basilica is a kingdom in Greek. And the kingdom that is likely in view here is probably, even though he was not actually a king, but the kingdom or the domain of Herod Antipas, the same Herod that had beheaded John the Baptist. Not a very nice fellow, and if Jesus uh, were uh, to pick his enemies on human terms, he would probably pick Herod, because Herod um, had crucified, or not, Herod had be, or would behead his cousin, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Messiah. Well, um, so this is a royal official, someone who's associated with Herod's kingdom, and his son is ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So just to, to go back to your mental map with uh, Galilee up here, uh, just sort of uh, a little bit uh, to the west of Galilee, or of the Sea of Galilee, was Cana of Galilee, where Jesus was uh, traveling. And then right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, about 15 miles to the east, is Capernaum. And Cana would be on the, the higher plain, and then you would go down from Cana. You'd go down toward the, uh, toward the de depressed area where the Sea of Galilee was. And it was from Cana to Galilee, it was downhill. From, uh, from Cana to Capernaum, it was downhill. It was obviously uphill from Capernaum to Galilee, about 15 miles. So when this man hears that Jesus has come from Judea to, um, to Cana in Galilee, he immediately sets out to find him. Because he's heard, this man does great miracles. This man does things that no one has ever done. And as any loving parent would do, if there is hope to cure a deadly disease that is killing your child, most parents would do all that they could to get their child to that help. 
Now, we, don't, we aren't given a character sketch. We're not given an insight into this man's heart. But at, at the very least, he's a loving parent. And he is finding a glimmer of hope in Jesus. Now, this doesn't really say anything about his faith at this point. Because people, you probably know people, when they experience terminal illness or, or some sort of real... Uh, setback, they will turn to almost anyone or anything to get hope. They'll go to the psychic healing or, or uh, all kinds of alternative therapies. Um, and and I've, I've even seen Christians compromise their biblical convictions and, and try something that almost borders on, on witchcraft in order to try to be healed. So desperation does not necessarily make saving faith. Um, it's very often it's uh, many vows to God that if you just fix me, fix my situation, I'll serve you forever. And then once the situation's fixed, away you go. Well, we can discern from this that this man is desperate and he has walked all the way from, um, from Capernaum. Now Jesus speaks to the man, but he, not, he speaks not only to the man. In, in Greek there are two ways that you can say the word you. Like we we only have you. When I am I am speaking to you, you can speak to me. Uh, but in Greek there is a plural plural use of the word you. And it's like you all or use. Uh, so Jesus turns to the man and he speaks to him. And he says to the man, and obviously there are others around because he says, you all, or unless you people See signs and wonders, you will not believe. So there is something that is so very typical of human beings in general, but especially of the Jews. They were characterized as people who desired a sign. Remember, they had asked him when he was doing all those signs in Jerusalem. They asked you, they asked him, "What what sign will you do to show us that you have the authority to to do these things?" And and he says. Uh, Tear this temple down and I'll raise it again in three days. He's talking about his body. But I'm just showing that as evidence that they were always looking for a sign. They had a whole bunch of signs that he'd already done to cleanse the temple, which was a sign enough. But they wanted verification that he was actually qualified, so they asked for some more signs. So anyway, uh, Jesus says to the man, but he's really addressing the whole crowd. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So that's our third point. There's a desire for wonders. And you can certainly see this. As you look around the spiritual landscape in, among evangelicals, and uh, not, not just evangelicals, you, a, a wide swath of people, um, they are looking for something that is spectacular, that, uh, that uh, affects them supernaturally, that um, produces some sort of manifestation. Uh, or they, they want to see um, they want to see dramatic healings and you have people who are actually faking all kinds of healings like that because that's what people want to see you had them in Bible times as well remember Simon the magician um, people said he had the great power and they flocked to him and they held him in high esteem and when he saw the power of Christ he realized that his or the power of the Holy Spirit he realized that his power didn't hold a candle to it, and he tried to 
to buy his way into that kind of power. Well, people do have a desire for wonders, a desire for science. And I can imagine, I wasn't there, so I am imagining, but I don't think I'm even stretching to say that Jesus is upset when he says, says this. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come now before my child dies. So Jesus has compassion for this man. He may or may not be one of those sign seekers, but what he's really focusing on right now is his dear son is about to die. And so in contradistinction to this, and even in spite of this people's desire for uh, wonders, Jesus speaks to him a dynamic word. He speaks to him a powerful word that causes this man to go into action. He says, go. Go, your son lives. Jesus initiates life with words. In John 5.25, I want to read this. I read it at the funeral yesterday too. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. Now he says the hour is coming, but he also says it's now here. So, even as we read this text, we have an... Uh, a young man being brought back, not from death, but from the brink of death. But the power of the voice of the Son of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read about the Christ returning with the cry of command. We read of Jesus also bringing Lazarus forth from the grave with a cry of command. Lazarus, come forth. Now, in this instance, Jesus speaks to the man, go, your son will live. He doesn't even speak to the boy. He doesn't even speak a word that says, boy, be healed. All he has to do is think it. But he speaks this word, and the man believes. When you truly hear the word of Christ, and when Christ's word penetrates deep into your heart, there is something initiated that you could never initiate yourself, and that is belief. The man didn't believe and say, well, maybe if you come to my house, and maybe if you uh, do some sort of potion and hocus-pocus thing, and then, then maybe my son will live. Jesus just says, go. The man believes, and he takes off on his way. There's something supernatural about that. Now, we don't know yet whether this man is believing that Jesus is Messiah. But he does believe that Jesus has healed his son. So there's a dynamic word. The gospel is a dynamic word. When we preach Christ... When we express our confidence in Him, 
when we preach the gospel that promises life to people who are not only on the verge of death, but deep in its depths. When we speak that dynamic word, according to the Father's good pleasure, He brings life. He brings life from the dead. Well, there is more than this word. There is the fact that Jesus actually heals and how He heals tells us so much about who He is. So we have a definitive witness. This is the last point. In verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So remember, he's heading down back toward the Sea of Galilee. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when the son had said to him, your son will live. Now... Now we've got some more certainty. You've got this initial longing, and Jesus indulges this man's desire to see him do this sign. You have then a belief when Jesus says, Go, your son lives. He believes the words of Jesus. And then, when he sees what Christ has done, when he sees the new life, the life that has come back to his son, and he hears the testimony of his servants telling him this, And he discovers that the fever left him at the exact hour that he had come to Jesus. Says, he himself believed in all his household. So did he believe and then forget that he believed and then believe again? No. He believed perhaps in still in kind of a spectator way. But having been convinced fully convinced in his mind that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He believed. And his family believed. So, again, just as uh, when the woman at the well, when Jesus laid upon her the, 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 the sentence that she would never forget, I who speak to you am he. I am. I am the I am. I am the Messiah. And then she went and she told the people. They believed her testimony. And because of her testimony, they came to Jesus. And when they heard Jesus speak, they believed not any longer because of the woman's words, but because of Jesus' words. This is a definitive witness. All of these signs that Jesus does are recorded and all of the teaching that surrounds the signs in the book of John, this is all recorded so that I'll read it from from John 20 verse 31. And this is the theme of the book. You can really see how, um, how this is being developed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So in the middle of this, we have a rebuke of people who are satisfied with 
signs. They're satisfied with um, the spectacle of a healing or of a manifestation of some kind. But this isn't real faith. It's a faith, it's a faith that's grievous to Jesus. It's a faith, faith that's grievous to God. You, you can get some idea of the type of dishonor, and this is, this is a silly example, but you've heard of many uh, of these people who become famous musicians when they're young. And they spend their lives touring from town to town to town. And as they go from town to town, people are clamoring for this song or that song. They're clamoring for autographs. They're, they've idolized them. None of the people care, or none of the people know them. None of the people care a bit about what they really think. They're concerned with an image. They're concerned with, um, with something that it gives them pleasure to be associated with. Jesus, when he saves people, he speaks to them in a way that they cannot deny. And he does a work of grace in their hearts so that they believe. And they believe this unbelievable thing that Jesus, the Son of God, left his heavenly glory, took upon himself the form of a man, and not just a man, but a servant. And as that man, and as that servant, he lived perfectly, fulfilling all of God's requirements, fulfilling all righteousness, being about his father's business. And his father said from heaven on a couple of occasions, this is my beloved son, one place he says, in whom I'm well pleased. Another place he says, hear him. So a perfect fulfillment of all of God's righteousness as a man, because he was fully man and at the same time fully God. And then, as that servant, going willingly to death and being uniquely qualified to pay for all the sin of all mankind... Because he was that one person who did not have to die for his own sin. He was that one person who was completely justified in the sight of God and completely righteous and blameless. And therefore, willingly, he took upon himself all of the sin of the world and went obediently to the cross. He laid his life down freely. Not everybody's going to believe that. And though people might believe that it happened historically, not many people are going to receive it. At least, well, I shouldn't say not many. The Lord knows. But there are many people who will reject it. And then, on top of all that, to top all of the signs that are recorded in the book of John and the other Gospels, and those that were not even recorded. The greatest sign is that the temple that was destroyed, his body, was raised again in three days. 
and ascended to heaven, where he now lives and reigns and intercedes for everyone who believes in him as their great high priest and has already paid the sacrifice and paid for the sin, their sin, so that they can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they have eternal life through faith in him. You don't believe something like that and you don't receive something like that unless the word of Christ comes to you and does a work of grace in your heart. Perhaps, even in this presentation, even in this story, this true story of how Jesus brought a son back from the brink of death. Perhaps you hear the assurance that Jesus is indeed giving life. So, there is a progression here from spectator faith to saving faith. From believing to believing. To believing about Jesus, to believing that he can do what he says he's going to do, to believing to the extent that you believe and you bring, you bring the message to your whole household. There is a transforming aspect to the truth of Jesus. So let's uh, perhaps examine the faith that we profess. Did my faith start with me? Is my faith something that is dependent upon sign after sign after sign? Or is my faith something that has changed me? Is my faith something God-given, God-initiated, god protected which will result and in the assurance of eternal life some things to think carefully about and I trust that the Lord has uh, reached all of our hearts with these words let's pray Lord, I thank you that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I thank you, Lord, that at the voice of the Son of God, the dead will be raised. I thank you, Lord, that you are the one who has the authority to save. Go, your son lives. You have authority over life, death, sickness. You have authority, as we read the other signs in the Gospel of John, over the waves, over um, over food. You could feed five thousand with a small a young boy's lunch. Lord, you have authority over paralysis, and Lord, you had authority to command Lazarus to come up from the grave. You can do this because you are the Messiah. You are the I Am. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith, perhaps even if we only have a spectator faith. Lord, that you would initiate and that you would cultivate within us a true saving faith. 
that we might trust in Jesus Christ alone. And Lord, that having trusted him, we would take his testimony to others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.